As you know, this morning we will be starting a new series on the doctrine and practice of the church. And as the worksheets are going around, as you are finding your seats, if you would take your Bible and turn to a very familiar book, the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, don't worry, we won't be covering chapter 1, verse 2. Actually, we'll be in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. And we will read this verse as a springboard for our time together this morning. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we pray with the hymnist this morning. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. Lord, our prayer is this morning that we would come to understand the bride of Christ, the church, as you have ordained her. Our prayer is this morning that we would come to love the bride of Christ, as Christ has loved her. So Lord, as we open your word, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, that we may understand and love the bride of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the 1970s, English pastor David Watson wrote these words. Jesus, yes. Church, no. So read a placard carried by a student. In this spiritually hungry age, the interest in the person of Jesus is unmistakable. At the same time, the popular image of the church is that of empty and decaying buildings. Thus, the growing enthusiasm for Jesus seems tragically offset by the almost total disenchantment of the church. These words written in the 1970s still ring true today. In fact, they are as true as they have ever been. In America today, there seems to be, to some degree, interest in the person of Christ. Well, at the same time, there is little, if any, interest in the church of Christ. In the United States alone, the Gallup poll reports almost 8 in 10 Americans identify with a religion, mostly Christian. In the 2016 Gallup poll, 89% of Americans believed in God. In 1937, when Gallup first asked about church membership, 73% of those who identified themselves as Christian said they were a member of a church. In the 1980s, this figure dropped into the 60% range. 
In 2015, it fell to its lowest point of 54%. Author William Hendricks writes, it is estimated that 53,000 people leave churches every week and never come back. Jesus, yes, church, no, is as true today as it has ever been. The spirit of Jesus, yes, church, no, is alive and thriving in America today. This morning, we start a new series on the doctrine of the church. We will call our series The Communion of the Saints. Now, the Communion of the Saints is named after the Apostles' Creed, where it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now, just a word of clarification here before we proceed. When you read the word Catholic, notice the lowercase c, that does not refer to the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic, lowercase c, is used in its generic original sense, and it means universal. Universal. The Holy Catholic Church is the universal church of Jesus Christ. It refers to the true Christian church in all times and all places. It refers to the true Christian church in all cultures, in all countries, in all ages. It is the universal church of Jesus Christ. The Apostles' Creed is one of the earliest doctrinal statements ever written. It was written very early. We believe that it was written sometime in the second century. It is very old. Now, we're not going to read through the entire Apostles' Creed here this morning. I just put it up here for some context. But I just want to make one simple observation as we proceed. In its three major sections, the Apostles' Creed recites, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, it makes a lot of sense to write your doctrinal statement that way. After all, we as Christians are worshipers of the triune God. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, what is often overlooked is the fourth major section of the Apostles' Creed, where the Creed recites, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now, it's obvious why it says, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, because obviously, God is invisible. God is a spirit. It is clearly a matter of faith to believe in a triune God. It is clearly a matter of belief to believe in a triune God. But why does it say, I believe in the church? Why do you have to believe in the church? Is it because you can't see the church? Is it because the church is invisible? Well, obviously it's not that, because we see churches all the time. Actually, the opposite is true. People do not believe in the church because they do see the church. They see the church, warts and all. 
They see the church with all of its stains and blemishes. They see the church with all of its sins and shortcomings. People do not believe in the church because they do see the church. When I was in high school, my older brother had a friend who was a Roman Catholic. And I had just been converted between my second and third year of high school. And I didn't know anything, and I would just talk to him about religion. And I asked him why he, if he was a Roman Catholic, never went to church. And he used to always say to me, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Well, what does that mean? It means I believe in God, but I don't believe in the church. I have faith in God, but I don't have faith in the church. I am devoted to God, but I'm not devoted to the church. I love God, but I hate the church. Brethren, you know what strikes me about the Apostles' Creed, a doctrinal statement from the second century? What strikes me is Christians in the second century believed in the church. In the second century, it was impossible to be devoted to God and not be devoted to the church. Those who loved Jesus loved his bride, the church. Those who loved Jesus loved what Jesus loved, his church. In the early church, in the second century, you could not believe in the triune God without also believing in the church. I believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. Do you believe in the church? Do you believe in the communion of the saints? And if you do, the only appropriate next question is, what do you believe about the church? What do you believe about the church? Over the next several months, broadly speaking, we will be covering a branch of systematic theology known as ecclesiology, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And here are the topics that we will be covering in our series, The Communion of the Saints. We will divide our series roughly into two sections, the doctrine of the church and the practice of the church. First, what is the church? Secondly, next week, we will look at the mission of the church then the case for church membership, then the role of doctrine in the life of the church, then the ordinances of the church, such as baptism, where we'll talk about the doctrine of infant baptism. Are we supposed to baptize our babies? We'll talk about Roman Catholic baptism. How is that different from our baptism? And the Lord's Supper and various views on the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about understanding the theology of the Lord's Day. Does the Old Testament Sabbath in any way relates to our understanding of Sunday, the Lord's Day. We'll talk about the corporate worship of the church. We'll talk about the government of the church. For instance, what is the difference between Presbyterianism, Episcopalianism, and Congregationalism? We'll talk about who is the Pope. Is the Pope the rock upon which the church was founded. 
just to give you the answer up front, the answer is no. <laughs> then we will move on to the practice of the church. Fellowship, love, and liberty within the church. The unity and diversity of the church. The purity of the church, where we will be talking about rebuking one another in love. We'll be talking about church discipline. The use of spiritual gifts in the church, tithing and giving for the church, and lastly, when the church disappoints, dealing with church hurt. And notice I said when, not if. Today, we will start with the most basic foundation. What is the church? And I remind us that it is fundamentally necessary for us to start here. The problem with the church today is not that the world does not know what the church is. We expect that. We expect the world to be uninformed about the church. The problem with the church today is that the church itself does not know what it is. It's no wonder that the church is so confused about what it is to do in this world. It's no wonder that the church is so confused about its own mission. The church is struggling so much today with what we are to do because we do not know who we are. So we should not begin with the question, what should we be doing? We should begin with the question, who are we? What are we? What is the church? Brothers and sisters, definition precedes action. Identity precedes duty. Being precedes doing. Nay, being defines doing. Being determines doing. Who we are must determine what we do. So this morning, we'll start by looking at what is the church. And I'd like to answer this question with five foundational features of the true Christian church. The first foundational feature is the identity of the church. Now, as we look to the identity of the church, we look to the very title of our series itself. We look to the Apostles' Creed itself. The church is the communion of the saints. Now, more specifically, communion is broken down into two aspects, community and union. The church, then, is the community of saints that has union in Jesus Christ. We have community with one another, and we have union in Jesus Christ. It is community in union. Every good biblical definition of the church that I have read includes both of these aspects. Here is one example. Greg Allison defines the church as, the church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body. Now, in the beginning of Allison's definition, we see the community aspect. The church is the people of God. Now, let's get this straight right at the beginning. Jesus died to create a people. As one author put it, Jesus died not just for people, Jesus died for a people. 
That is, Jesus died not just for people in general. Jesus died for a people. Jesus died not just for people in some vague, ambiguous, nebulous sort of way. But Jesus died for a people. A specific people. A community of people. A community of saints. Our community comes at the expense and the suffering of the death of Christ. Acts 20 says that we are the people of God purchased by his blood. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. John 10 says that he laid down his life for the flock. Do you hear the language of community? People, church, flock. The Bible speaks more frequently of Christ dying for his corporate people than Christ dying for individual people. The point is, Christ died so that individuals would no longer remain just individuals, but individuals would make up the whole. That you would make up a community. So friends, when you regard the community of God as something peripheral, to the Christian life rather than central to the Christian life, I dare say you ignore one of the most important purposes of the cross of Christ. Christ died to bring us together. Christ died to create a community. Christ died so that individuals would make up the whole. Christ died to make us one. But inclusion in this community comes with a condition. You cannot be born into this community. You're not in this community because your parents are in this community. You're not in this community because you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. You can only be grafted into this community through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. We are in covenant with God and one another on the basis of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is why it is the community of saints. 1 Corinthians 1-2 calls believers saints. Saints who are called. Saints who are foreknown, as we heard this morning. If you are a believer here this morning, you are, biblically speaking, set apart for God. Biblically speaking, you are consecrated unto God. Biblically speaking, if you are a believer here this morning, you are a saint by virtue of your position in Jesus Christ. And so this means that only saints, only believers are a part of the church. Now you say to me, oh, Ben, I mean, that is blatantly obvious. It is plainly obvious that only believers are to be a part of the church. Well, I hope that remains as blatantly obvious when we talk about the doctrine of infant baptism. But beyond the community of the church, we must see that we as the people of God are distinguished by the union of the church. We are in community with one another Because we are first and foremost in union with Christ. We have unity in him. We have been incorporated into his body. 1 Corinthians 12.12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, 
Now all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. The people of God, plural, is brought together as one, singular. We are one body with many parts. Every here this morning has this in common. At the point of conversion, when you were saved, you were grafted into Jesus Christ. You were incorporated into his body. You were united to him. Becoming a Christian and being added to the church are one and the same. They are synonymous. They are simultaneous. They are unified. When you become a Christian, you are automatically added to Christ's body, the church, by virtue of your with him. And so we see that the church defined by what it does, nor is the church exclusively defined by what it believes, for even demons can have good doctrine. But the church is first and foremost defined by who it clings to. We as the church have union in Jesus Christ. In scripture, the church is pictured as a holy and royal sacrifices to God, a chosen race belonging to God, a separate nation whose king is the eternal God, a temple indwelt by the spirit of God, a set of branches connected to Jesus Christ the vine, a flock led by the good shepherd, a household or family sharing the common life of the eternal father, a body of which Jesus, the Lord Jesus is the head, the new humanity bride of Christ. This is who we are, brothers and sisters. This is our identity, the identity of the church. Now let's move on. Secondly, the vocabulary of the church. Now have you ever wondered, where did we get this word in English that we call church? Well, the English term church comes from the Scottish word kirk. And the German word Kirsch. And these in turn are derived from the Greek word kuriakon, which means belonging to the Lord. The Greek word kurios means Lord, and so kuriakon means belonging to the Lord. And this word kuriakon appears only twice in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11.20 says that it is the Lord's Supper. It is the supper belonging to the Lord. It appears in Revelation 1.10 where it refers to the Lord's day. It is the day belonging to the Lord. And so just as communion belongs to the Lord, and just as the Lord's day, Sunday, belongs to the Lord, so we, as the people of God, belong to the Lord. The early Christians used this word, church, kuriakon, to refer to the people of God belonging to the Lord. Now notice... The only two times this word is used in the New Testament, both of which do not refer to the actual church. This means that when we read the word church in our Bibles, it is not the Greek word kuriakon. It is the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia, which means the called out one. So we as the church are the called out ones. Again, 1 Peter 2.9, 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here we see both aspects of the word church. We are a people for God's own possession. We belong to the Lord, and yet we are also the called out ones. We have been called out of the world into the presence of God. We have been called out of darkness into light. We have been called out of sin into righteousness. We have been called out of hell and into heaven. We are the called out ones, the ecclesia. What I'd like to do is take a closer look at this word ecclesia. Thirdly, the manifestation of the church. The manifestation of the church. The word ecclesia occurs 109 times in the New Testament with reference to the church. Never does it refer to a church building. Not a single time. But it is used in two different senses. The first way it is used is to refer to the universal church, the spiritual unity of all believers in Christ. The London Baptist Confession of Faith defines the universal church as the Catholic, notice lowercase c, or universal church, which may be called invisible, notice the synonyms, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. So the universal church is the true Christian church in all times and all places. The universal church includes all Christians who have ever lived. It includes deceased believers, believers in heaven, living believers scattered throughout the world. It is not limited by time, space, social status, national identity. The universal church goes beyond any one church's and it goes beyond any one church's clocks. Colossians 1.18 says, body, the church. Ephesians 5.25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And these references are obviously not referring just to the church in Colossae or the church in Ephesus. These are referring to the universal church. Christ died for the universal church. Christ So the New Testament speaks clearly about the universal church. However, the New Testament also makes clear that believers who are a part of the universal church are to join themselves to a local church, a gathered congregation of believers in one location, in the same locale, the same area. The word ecclesia is nearly always used in the Bible to describe church, not the universal church. 1 Corinthians 1-2, the church at Corinth. Galatians 1-2, the churches of... 1 Thessalonians 1-1, the church at Thessalonica. Galatians 1-22, the churches of Judea. So we should not think of the universal church as divorced from the local church. Membership in the universal church does not excuse membership in the local church. Nay, the opposite is true. Membership in the universal church assumes membership in the local church. Membership in the universal church calls for membership in the local church. Another synonym for the universal church is the invisible church. Wayne Grudem defines the invisible church as 
the church, the invisible church, is the church as God sees it. This means that only God knows who is a true believer and who is not. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. Now the reality is, is that in the church, we cannot tell who is a true believer or who is not with absolute 100% certainty. Only God can look at the congregation of any one given church and see with absolute 100% certainty all those who are his. And in this sense, God sees what is invisible. God sees into the hearts of men. God knows the souls of men. God knows those who are his. The invisible church is in contrast to the visible church. Grudem defines the visible church as, the visible church is the church as Christians on earth see it. This means that the visible church includes all those who profess faith, all those who give evidence of salvation. Now, we do the best we can to have a regenerate church membership, but Jesus always told us that there would be tares among the wheat, that there would be goats among the sheep, that there would be those who say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, and he would say to them, I never knew you. We cannot tell with absolute certainty who is a believer and who is not. The invisible church is the church as God infallibly sees it, while the visible church is the church as we see it, infallibly or fallibly and imperfectly. When Olivia and I were at our old church in Riverside, there was a man who was a longtime member of the church. He was a very dear man. Single dad, he used to bring his son to church with him every Sunday. And this man was known as a reader. He loved to read really good, solid books. Not only that, he was known as a very generous man because he was known for giving away books. He would talk to you, get to know you, he would listen to you, and then months later, he would come to you with a book which he felt was beneficial to your soul. I still remember he gave me the book, Dear Timothy, Letters on Pastoral Ministry. Great book. I read it, I devoured it, I loved it. He was a dear man. One day, he stopped coming to church. One day, he stopped professing Christ. One day, he denied Christ. One day, he was never heard from again. You see, this man was a part of the visible church, but he was not a part of the invisible church. By all accounts, we thought that he was a believer. We thought that he belonged to the Lord. We thought he was a called out one. By all accounts, he was a part of the visible church. But God knows those who are his. And God, without a doubt, knew the state of his heart, that he was not called out, that he was not belonging to the Lord, and he was not a part of the invisible church. Another way to refer to the universal church or the invisible church is to call it the Catholic church. Again, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the holy Catholic church. And again, this is not referring to the Roman Catholic church. Notice, lowercase c. The word Catholic, lowercase c, refers to the universal church. 
So any true Christian church that has ever existed is a part of the Catholic lowercase c church. A church in Malaysia, a church in the Czech Republic, a house church in Mongolia, a local church in Fullerton, are all a part of the Holy Catholic Church. A church in 200 AD, a church in 1100 AD, a church in 1600 AD, a church in 2018, are all a part of the Holy Catholic Church. When the Roman Catholic Church, notice Big C, capital C, took this name, they distorted the word. Again, Catholic means universal. But how can a Roman church be universal? The title Roman Catholic Church literally means Roman universal church. It's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. It's like big shrimp. Or as much as it pains to say me, Los Angeles Lakers. There's no lakes in Los Angeles. There's only desert. Although there were lakes in Minnesota where they came from. It's like... The cereal, grape nuts. It's neither grapes nor nuts. The name doesn't make any sense. It's an oxymoron, a contradiction. The true Catholic Church, lowercase c, is the universal church, is the invisible church. They are one and the same. Now, fourthly, let's move on to the marks of the church. What makes up a true church? Have you ever thought about that? What makes a church a church? Is any gathering of Christians a church? If you had to pull out a sheet of paper and write down your thoughts, what makes up a church? What makes a church an actual church? What would you write down? Well, there's no doubt many ways to answer this question, and many of them have merit. So I'm not going to answer it for, this morning, for you this morning. I'm just going to take a cop out. That's right. I'm not going to answer it for you. I'm going to let greater men than I answer this question. I'm going to let the voices of giants answer this question. I'm going to let the democracy of the dead answer this question. Well, as we will see over the past 500 years since the Reformation, There has been widespread consensus among Protestants as to the marks of the church. Since the Reformation, there have been three distinguishing marks of the true church. That's their phrase, their term, the marks of the church. And there are three of them. Now, at this point, some of you are saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on a second, just right there. Didn't Mark Dever write a book about the nine marks of the church? Good question. Well, lest you accuse me of historical bias, as if older is always better, I point you to the introduction of Mark Dever's book. In Mark Dever's book, he writes about the nine marks of a healthy church. But in the introduction of his book, he points to the same three marks of the true church, the same three marks that we will be referring to here. Now, this may seem like splitting hairs to you, but you must understand that there is a difference between the true church and the healthy church. Because a church may be more or less healthy, 
but a church may not be more or less true. A church may be more or less pure, but a church is either true or false. More on this when we talk about church discipline and the purity of the church. So there are three marks of the true church. And here they are. Number one, the right doctrine of the word of God. Number two, the right administration of the ordinances or sacraments, baptism, and Lord's Supper. Number three, the right exercise of church discipline. These, by Protestant consensus, are the three marks of the true church. Now, what I'm going to do at this point is I'm going to turn to the doctrinal statements which have been written since the Reformation. And I'm doing this on purpose to show us that across nearly all Protestant denominations, from Lutherans to Presbyterians to Baptists to Anglicans to Reformed, Christians in a multitude of denominations across the past 500 years are in solid agreement as to the marks of the true church. For instance, the Augsburg Confession, which is the doctrinal statement of the Lutheran church, the church is the congregation of the saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. In 1553, Thomas Cranmer wrote in the 39 Articles of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance. John Calvin himself wrote this, wherever we see the word of God sincerely preached and heard, wherever we see the sacraments administered according to the institution of Christ, There, we cannot have any doubt that the Church of God has some existence. Lastly, the Belgic Confession. Article 29 says, The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. The first mark, the right preaching of the word of God, the right doctrine of the word of God, refers to doctrinal purity. The church is called upon to be the herald and guardian of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Brothers and sisters, Cornerstone Bible Church, we must constantly strive to make certain that we are persevering and contending for the apostolic truth, which was once for all handed down to the saints. We are a herald and guardian of this truth. The second mark, the right administration of the ordinances, refers to the baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are given to the local church to perform in every place, in every culture, in every age, for the rest of time until the return of Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were given to the local church to perform. They are not given to you to practice in the privacy of your own home. They are not given to you and a buddy to practice during an accountability session. It's not for parents to baptize their babies in the bathtub at home. Actually, I'm going to argue it's not for parents to baptize their babies at all. The ordinances were given to the local church. They are given to the local church to perform. 
finally, we have church discipline, which ensures and enforces the true purity of the church, the holiness of the church. First Peter 2.9 calls the church a holy nation. First Peter 1.16 says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Thus saith the Holy One of Israel. You are to be holy as God is holy. Holiness is a mark of the church. Now you could look at these marks as in church discipline, or you could look at these marks as true doctrine, true practice, and true holiness. True doctrine, true practice, and true holiness. Fifth and last, the purpose of the church. And here are the purposes of the church. Exaltation, edification, education, and evangelism. That is, exaltation is first. Exaltation is foremost. Exaltation is paramount. It is primary. We exist as a church, to give God true and living worship. Worship is the primary purpose and goal of the church. The other three serve the primary. The other three are subservient to exaltation. Our primary purpose in the church is to exalt God, and we do so by edifying one another in the church, educating the people of the church in life and doctrine, and evangelizing in order to add more worshipers to the church. Now notice the similarity of the pillars of Cornerstone Bible Church, praising God with passion, preaching the word with precision, praying with fervency, and progressing in evangelism and discipleship. The church is to engage in evangelism. If worship is supreme, then we should want all people everywhere to worship. But there is no worship if there are no worshipers, and this is why we witness. We evangelize to bring worshipers into the church. However, the worshipers themselves need to be matured. And so we need to educate, we need to teach the worshipers and equip them for the work of the ministry. Finally, the church exists to edify the saints in fellowship. We are here to help each other on the way to heaven. We're here to love one another. We are here to care for one another. We are here to rebuke one another in love. We are here to help each other on the way to heaven. So if these are the primary purposes of the church, I just want to make one point of application. We must be careful to avoid an error which has plagued the church for over 2,000 years. Some churches take good things, preaching and theology, evangelism and missions, edification and fellowship, and they make them the end-all, be-all of the church. For instance, some churches, they get so focused on preaching and theology that they neglect evangelism. Or they get so focused on evangelism that they neglect preaching and theology. All the sermons are evangelistic, and they absolutely neglect the maturity of the believer. Or some churches, well-meaning, make edification and fellowship, the end-all, be-all, and they reduce the ministry of the church to nothing more than a social club. And if you think that we are not in danger of this cornerstone, then we are kidding ourselves. 
if you think that we are not in danger of making this same mistake, then we are blind to our own weaknesses. Oh, Cornerstone, let us be very careful to maintain the purposes of the church that God has set forth for us in his scripture. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, as we close our session, but as we begin this series, a very simple question. Do you believe in the church? Now that you understand the identity of the church, now that you know the vocabulary of the church, now that you grasp the manifestation of the church, now that you see the marks of the church, now that you're reminded of the purposes of the church, only one question remains. Do you believe in the church? Can you say with the saints of old, can you say with our brothers and sisters around the world, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints? Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, we know that the church is founded upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that the church is founded upon the apostolic doctrine and the truth of the gospel. And we are so thankful, O God, that you have included us in this church, that you have foreknown us and elected us and loved us and known us to the point where you would graft us into this community called the church. Help us, O God, to love it as you love it. Help us, O God, to love the bride of Christ as you have loved the bride of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.